1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Let me read it, and then we'll begin to walk through. John writes and says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, 12 through 14 is an interruption into kind of the things John has been talking about. And if you're reading along and just discover that in your Bible, it's one of these things where you are readily with him, one and two. You recognize Jesus, the propitiation, three through six, you're like, I got it, I've got to love God. Seven through 11, you're like, I've got it, I've got to love other people. I understand this. You come into 12 through 14, and it's this interruption. We're not quite sure to know what to do with it, okay? Let me explain it by way of this. When I was in high school, uh, we moved to Lafayette, Louisiana from Stavanger, Norway. Understandably, I didn't know very many people I went to school with. And so I'm in, um, I'm in a uh, algebra class one day. I'm in Mrs. Caldwell's algebra class. That's not important for you, but for me it helps. And so I'm in there, and I'm struggling A plus C in, in letters, and I hadn't done all that well in English. And so now I'm, it's like my worst nightmare come true. They've introduced English into math, and so I'm really... This is like the conspiracy teachers conspired over the summer, and now they've, anyway, whatever. And so I'm in there, and they come across the loudspeaker, and I'm used to ignoring these things. Uh, we're looking for uh, Janitor Jones. Janitor Jones, someone has missed the toilet. Janitor Jones, please. And so, you know, these things, you just, it's Louisiana. We have one intercom system for everything. And so they come across, and they say, uh, Mrs. Caldwell is Matthew Beasley in the class. And I just, I'm instantly sweating, right? And not just because it's Louisiana in a portable building that the AC doesn't work, but like more sweat is coming upon me. Mrs. Caldwell is Matthew Beasley in there. And she says, yes, he is. Would you send him to the principal's office? Oh, man. Like thinking of it now, it's this like, kind of the pit of the stomach feeling. You're like, I've never been, I don't know, I don't know where that is. And so I had to ask my teacher, I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know where the principal's office is. Could you, could you point me out to the principal? He's like, yeah, I go to the main building and just tell them who you are and what you're there for. And so I go in and I'm Matthew Beasley and the secretary says, sit. So I do. Right? And then she says, he's ready for you. And so I go in and this, this man's name is Ayatollah Garrett. And he's, he's scary as all get out. And so I go in and I sit across from Ayatollah. And I don't think that's how you pronounce his name. And so I sit across from him, and he says, we're going to talk about this morning? If you want to. Don't you think we should talk about this morning? If you want to. Why don't you tell me what happened when you showed up to school this morning? So I'm thinking, oh, I don't think I was packing heat. Like, I'm not really... Left that in my other underwear. I mean, I, what's going on? So I was like, well, you know, mom dropped me off. I don't, don't ride the school bus and stood outside there because you guys think we're not allowed inside the building until you ring the bell. So I'm sitting outside there and new here, so I don't have any friends. So I'm just kind of doing this number. He's like, well, what happened next? I was like, well, you know, I did some of this number. I was like, 
well, what happened after that? I was like, well, you know, I did some more of this again. And so I just, I really, I just kind of waited for the bell, and the bell rang, and I went in, and then I stood in front of my locker and went, oh, no, what's the combination? And then I got it, and I got my books, and then I went to class, and then I'm sitting in class, and all of a sudden you call, and I walk down here, and then I stand there, as I sit, and then stand, and they came in, and, and you asked me if I want to talk about this morning. I said, I'm not really sure, but I guess you want to talk about this morning. So, and then you asked me again, and now you're, I'm just done. He said, so you want to talk about the fight? I was like, what? When did I do that? So he says, Adam, I'm very disappointed in you. I said, wait a minute. I'm not Adam. He said, you're Matthew A. Beasley, aren't you? I said, Matthew Allen. He said, so your name isn't Adam? I said, no. No, it's not. He said, you don't spell your last name with a Z? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, I guess you can go back to class. To show the height of the Louisiana school system, I got called to the office one more time that day. I walked in, and that lady said, sit. I said, I'm not going to sit, and my name's not Adam Beasley. You've got the wrong guy. I went back to class. <laughs> Man, it is, it is difficult, and at times when we're accused of doing something, right, we feel this just kind of overwhelming sense of maybe they're right. Maybe I did get in a fight. Maybe I just forgot about it. <laughs> you know, these fists, man, wow, just don't know. <laughs> got to keep them locked up, put them in the pockets. And so we just, we just don't know, but sometimes when we get accused of doing something or we hear somebody near us get accused of doing something, we begin to feel, well, maybe I'm guilty, maybe, maybe this is true of me. What we've experienced in John, 1 John 2, 3 through 6, is so difficult to hear. Because we get in the midst of this and, and he tells us, he says, look, if you're not obeying, then perhaps it's an indication you don't love God. And we hear that and it comes into our hearts and it's absolutely devastating. And so we're barely limping and just kind of pulling ourselves along. And we come into 7 through 11, and he says, if if you aren't loving everybody around you, you're engaged in hatred towards them. And you're like, whoa, once I was limping with one leg, now I'm limping with both wheels or wheelchair. I just don't think I can do this anymore. And so both of these things, if, he says, if, if you're not obeying God and loving him through obedience, if you're not obeying God through loving him through loving everybody around you, then perhaps it's not true that you're Christians. This is what he said of us. That accusation stings, that hurts. Now we had two weeks to digest that and I really sought to encourage you, but imagine you're hearing all of these things at one time directed towards you, recognizing some considerable portion of your group has left, they've abandoned you. And so you begin to hear these things and you look at your own life and say, man, I am not 100% always obedient to God. I'm not 100% always in love with God and demonstrating that towards him and, and loving everybody around me. Come on now. I'm for sure not being perfect in that. And so we hear these things in our hearts. If we allow the, the text to do its work in there, it's, it's creating questions in us. It's, it's, it's probing at the kind of our internal motivation for doing things and, and where we stand before God. You know, the amazing thing that John does is he comes out of those passages and just, boom. He hits them with the most immediate point of confirmation, the most immediate point of just building them up so that they find their surety. Not in where they stand, not in remembering how they did this right or where they did that right, but they find their sure position with God in John's testimony of how God feels towards them. 
Now, he does this in somewhat of an interesting fashion. He addresses them in three groups. We've got children, we've got young men, and we've got fathers. But one of the things we recognize, if you look back at chapter 2 and verse 1, he addressed this whole group. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And he goes on, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the propitiation of our sins. So we recognize that within this text, anytime he refers to my little children, we all say, uh, here I am, right? And so anytime John refers to my little children within 12 through 14, he's talking about all of us. He's talking about every man, woman, and child in the church. And then going through, he describes young men and fathers. Now, John's not primarily split his group and saying, all right, we get the young people sit over here, we get the old people sit over here. Oh, you have white hair. Oh, I'm prematurely gray. Okay, fine, you stand in the middle. And so he's not doing that. What he's doing instead is looking at the group and saying, spiritually, we have those who are more spiritually mature, and we have those that are just kind of young in their journey. And so he has everybody. He has those new in the journey following Christ and those more seasoned following the journey. And so I hope you take some encouragement this morning as John addresses kind of where we are in the midst of not being perfect, in the midst of not doing everything exactly perfectly the way that we know that we should do, the way that the heart testifies that we should do, but being exactly where you are on the basis of God's radical life transforming and saving love for you. So look how he begins it in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So he addresses everybody in this group, everybody who says, man, I just, I haven't loved everybody perfectly, I'm not obeying perfectly, and he comes to you and he says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Now, our understanding of forgiveness is somewhat skewed and messed up. Let's just call it broken, Okay. Our understanding of forgiveness is more or less formed by our interactions with everybody around us. And this happens on a couple of different poles. On the, on the one hand, we think that, that we are more forgiven on the basis of the amazingness of our apology, right? So Valerie and I were talking about this the other day. And I said, man, I used to be a wretchedly terrible apologizer. Like, what's the word for that? Anyway. And she said, oh, yeah. You were n- numbered among the many trespassers. You were, you were pretty, pretty rotten at it. She said, do you remember what you used to say? I said, well, how could I forget? It was amazing. I thought it was amazing. It, it, it absolved me of all guilt and put it on you. And, and so what I would say was, I'm so sorry you feel that way. <laughs> all right. It's not really apologizing for anything. It took me a couple of years to figure that out. About year 10 of marriage, I really changed that. And so I'd say, I'm sorry you feel that way. And so she she explained to me why that was an inadequate apology. And so to a certain degree, like we feel the same way. We feel like if if somebody gives us this really robust apology, man, they must be so burdened. They must be so broken because the robust nature of their apology is an indication to us that they're indeed quite sorry. On the other hand, and so that's that's one understanding of, of forgiveness. On the other hand, of understanding of forgiveness is say I do something wrong, say I walk over and I, I smash Jesse's guitar to little bits. Right? And I go to him and say, Jesse, I'm so sorry. And he says, You know, that's kind of weird. I'm not sure why you did that in the middle of your sermon, but I, you know, lo and behold, I guess I forgive you. I said, Well, it was kind of an illustration. He says, I forgive you. Now, let's say four or five years down the line, I go again and I see his guitar and I'm just, you know, I'm angry. And so I take it and I smash it to little bits. 
what's our conversation likely gonna look like? I knew you were not to be trusted around my guitar. I remember six years ago when you smashed it to bits. Well, this is an indication he's not really forgiven me. He's just staved off justice. He's staved off retribution. He's staved off punishment. So when we come to God and he says, your sins are forgiven you, we have this understanding, one, that unless our apology was really robust, unless we felt some type of physical remorse towards God, and we spent hours and hours crying out our eyes before him, saying, oh, these are all the ways I'm broken. Oh, these are all the ways I'm upset. Oh, these are, hold on, hold on, let me turn my shirt. Where are the ashes? And throw these things on there, that maybe God looks at us and says, meh, your sins aren't so forgiven because you weren't so upset. Or maybe we think that when we go to God and we, we confess sin and say, God, I was looking at this stuff I shouldn't look at. I was engaged in this thing I shouldn't be looking at. I, I had a, a relationship I shouldn't have had. I, I used this thing I shouldn't have used. That God says, okay, you're forgiven. But then lo and behold, we come back to it five, six, seven, eight months later, a year later, and God says, you stupid idiot. I can't believe you're back there again. See, God doesn't forgive us that way. Our forgiveness of God isn't based on the robust nature of our apology to him. Our forgiveness before God isn't based upon or tenuous. It's not this staving off of guilt. You see, in terms of the way John wrote this, our forgiveness before God, we come to God in salvation, we confess our sins to him. Chapter one and verse nine says he is faithful and true to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have been made clean. You have been made whole. And so I mess up, I go to God and say, God, I have messed up again. I have to confess before you again. My confession is met with a renewed echo of my forgiveness, not my condemnation. So every time I am newly in need of forgiveness before him, he reminds me of my innocence, not my guilt. And so he writes to all of us everywhere. And he says, don't be reminded of your guilt. Be reminded of your innocence. And then he ties it not to our suitability. He ties it not to our suitability. He ties it not to our lovableness. He ties it to the name of Jesus. In Acts 4, in Acts 4, we have this wonderful testimony that says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our salvation rests, and firmly so, under the blessed name of Jesus. Amen? So he says, I'm writing to you so that you remember that your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven in the past. They're forgiven still. They're forgiven over the course of our lives. You are forgiven. Everybody say, I am forgiven. He says to you, you are forgiven. We embrace that. We are reminded of that in the midst of failure. And as forgiven people, he comes to the children once again. And he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. And I want you to understand how incredibly impactful this is. He writes to them, he says, you know the Father. You have intimate knowledge, personal knowledge, transferring, salvific knowledge of the creator of everything. Everything you see and observe was brought into existence by God. 
everything you see and observe and everything that holds those things together was brought into existence by this great God. And John's word to you is you know him. If you've ever seen Elf, do you remember the excitement on, in Will Ferrell's character when he hears that Santa's coming to town, right? And we're going to have Santa here. He's like, I know him! I know him! You guys need to spend some time this afternoon watching that because that was, that was really, anyway. And so he is, he, is, he is amazed that this guy is coming. This is the degree to which we should be overjoyed with this testimony that we know the Father, Do you recognize what a privilege it is to know God, to know the creator of all things, the creator of heaven and earth, the guy who is sustaining your breath, keeping your heart beating in your chest, restraining your wife from killing you, some of you right now. Wake up. You know him. And look at how Paul refers to our knowledge of him. Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Paul writes... And he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. God's spirit resides in your hearts. And this is its testimony. It cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul writing in the book of Romans said something very similar in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, you didn't inherit a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons to whom we cry, Abba, Father. This tremendous intimacy that you're able to have with the Father is derived through the Son. So he goes on, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's amazing testimony. God's spirit, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, resides in you. It is not your moment-by-moment obedience that gives steady testimony to the enduring quality of your salvation. Do you understand what I mean? We read 2, 3 through 6, we read 2, 7 through 11, and a whole host of other passages, and momentarily we look at it and we are broken because we recognize that we're not keeping it perfectly, right? Right? In those moments... His spirit cries out all the louder, Abba, Father. God is leading you to sense the truth of that in his word. And he is leading you to walk in the reality of that truth. A son and daughter of the king has no sense to be ashamed. They have no sense to doubt their belonging with him. Why? Not on the basis of their perfect obedience, but it's on their demonstration daily of their humble need for the reassurance provided by the Spirit. You are a son and daughter of the King. So he dresses all of us and he pulls all of this group back in. He says, be assured of your steady position before him. You are a child of God. And so then he goes and he says, look, now there's some of you out there who are who are younger in the faith. You are, you're bowled over with energy and exuberance. And so to those, he writes and he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the evil one. And then he, he piggybacks it there at the end of verse 14. And he says, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. This amazing testimony 
in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of temptation, he communicates this amazing truth of Scripture to you, that the enemy has been overcome. Now we might wonder, how does, how does that happen? How did, I, don't, I don't particularly remember a victory dance, and my victory dances are quite embellished. And so I don't, I don't remember a moment of time when I have overcome the evil one. John 16, 33, Jesus speaking, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we recognize the world as being the dominion of the evil. This amazing thing that he discusses here. This is what I want you to understand. Temptation is real, it is a problem. The Bible communicates to us that there is no temptation that has come before us that we're not able to withstand, to overcome. So, in the midst of temptation, your man, you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't look at, you're tempted to think something you shouldn't think. In the midst of that temptation, God provides a way of escape. We don't always take it. We don't always want to take it. We don't always take it. This is how we know that we can get over it. He says, I have overcome the world. You have overcome the evil. We find ourselves in this pattern, this sixth cycle of sin slipping down. And so we have victory for a week and a half, and then we have failure for two or three days. We have victory for a week and a half. We have failure for two or three days. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 9. The stain of sin in the midst of this, he says, you are forgiven your sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. God comes in and he purifies you once and for all and that he reminds you of that renewal in this process of cleansing. There is no reason for you to succumb to repeated failure and temptation. Surround yourself with brothers who love you. Surround yourself with older, wiser men who don't struggle with the same things you struggle with. Confess your sin to them. Let them, in some sense, work in your life to push you towards sanctification and holiness. But walk in the victory that you have overcome the evil one. Ladies. Younger ladies. This is what he's talking to there is this real temptation to look at the lives of everybody around you and to measure your success on kind of where you are compared to everybody you see, right? So you're on social media, you have Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, which doesn't make any sense, but it's neither here nor there. And so you have all of these things reinforcing to you, you are merely adequate, right? You're merely adequate. You haven't won any fitness competitions lately. You haven't won the Nobel Prize recently, at least not that anybody remembers. Your kids are awful, right? <laughs> like they're just, they're terrible. They, they break stuff that doesn't belong to you, and so that's really a problem. Uh, your husband may not be the spiritual leader in your home. And so you begin to look at all these ways that your life just isn't as, as perfect as the lives of all of those who you kind of fit into this mosaic of perfection. Recognize this. 
That mosaic of perfection, you're taking a little bit from this person's life and a little bit from that person's life and a little bit from this person's life and you put them together and what you've created there is an impossibility. You've created an image in some sense. You've created an idol. You're you're worshiping something because you're directing your life towards trying to be this model of perfection. And it's setting you up for failure. It's setting you up for disappointment. And the temptation is to try and direct your life to achieving this instead of directing your life to be holy and innocent and sanctified before God. When that temptation comes along, when you look at it and you want to look at the lives of everybody around you and say, my life just isn't what this should be and, and, and I work, I'm not able to stay home and I, you know, I feel this conflict to do this. Remind yourself of this truth. He has overcome the evil one. The evil one implants in you desires to be that which you aren't and remind you of your failure. Now look how they got strong. Look at this. It's the end of verse 14. He says, I write to you because you are strong. How? Because the word of God abides in you. The word of God abides in you. In some sense, it's our memorization of scripture which recalls all this truth to us in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of us encountering these lies from outside, right? It's us being kind of creatures of the word, investing ourselves in the truth of scripture and also resting and meditating on what God would have us to be. As Christians, largely, we have lost this fine art of kind of meditating on the word, feasting on the word. We're those who really just want to kind of throw the word in the microwave, have it pop out 45 seconds later and walk around blessing everybody with some type of pithy response we put on social media. Feasting on the word takes time, takes energy, And it can be exhausting. But the result of that, according to verse 14, is that it makes us strong. We're strong. And his word abides in you. God's word remains in you. The spirit of his son we read in Galatians, we read in Romans 8. It remains in you and it is giving a testimony to where you are. So in the midst of failure... Maybe your husband looks at you. Maybe people around you look at you. Maybe your mom or your dad look at you. Maybe your kids look at you. Ooh, we can talk about that later. And so they look at you and they remind you of your failure. What do we see here? His word remains. His word abides in you. It is giving a testimony to your strength in him, not on your ability to exist alone. There's like kind of this lone ranger out here on your own. This is this amazing testimony to us in the midst of failure. His word abides in you. Look what he does here at the end. He comes to these two groups, or to this, to this last group, and he writes to them the same thing. Now, this is not because they're forgetful, right? This is not because they're forgetful. This is not because at the end of their life, they just can't remember one thing from one moment to the next be an interesting thought but nonetheless he gets to this last group he says i'm writing to you father so he's writing to the most senior members of his congregation he's writing to the white-haired folks he's writing to those who have labored and toiled he's writing to those who are kind of approaching the end of their physical life likely but have also kind of reached the, the the higher echelon of what it is to be spiritually mature 
And you would think in some sense that when you're addressing people that are spiritually mature, and he would say, I write to you fathers because you understand the hypostatic union and you can explain the Trinity to everybody you encounter, right? I I, I write to you fathers because you're able to just kind of run roughshod over these young bucks and and to set them straight. I write to you uh, most senior member of the deal because you are so revered and, 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 and if you would do the right thing, then everybody would follow you. But he writes to them, he reminds them of a simple truth, an incredibly simple truth. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You've been a Christian 50, 60 years. You've been a Christian 20, 30 years. God writes to you. This is his word to you. You know Jesus. You know Jesus. And it's enough. Your claim at forgiveness, your claim at being sustained by him, isn't hinged upon, it's not contingent upon a lifetime of demonstrable faithfulness, but always rests on your knowledge of Jesus. There's a great temptation. There's a great temptation in kind of Western cultures, that that when we have worked somewhere for 30, 40 years, what do we do? We retire, right? And so you retire, you take early retirement, you get fired, or or however this is variously described, but you no longer have a regular nine to five. You no longer have, let's just be perfectly honest, you no longer have a seven to seven, right? And so you're no longer going in and working. And so you look at it, and you've got all of this free time, all of this free time, and some of you buckets of money. Some of you bucket, but some of you buckets of money, right? Let's talk about those buckets later. And so, and so we look at this, and so on the one hand, we've got all this free time. On the other hand, we have dispensable income, and, and, and we look at it, and we say, I've only got this much time left before I die, right? As far as phases of life go, there's retirement and then death, really, unless you take on some new adventure and then it's not retirement anymore. And so the temptation is when we reach that, we say, I can do whatever I want to do. My time is whatever I want it to be. My endeavors are whatever I want it to be. My relationships are whatever I want it to be. You spent 30 or 40 years growing to attain a, a, a wealth of knowledge of industry and all these things, and you, all, you just know things. You just know how the machinery in your shop works. You know how numbers work. You know how the different seasons and all these things work for all the various ways that you're involved. If you're a mom and, and you've stayed at home and you have all these years of kind of raising kids and so like you, you know, like, oh, that's, that's this, that's that. Mm-mm-mm. No, uh-uh, that's just crazy. You don't put that oil there. No, that's not going to cure anything. You really need a doctor. And so, like, you just kind of know these things. You know how these things work. Spiritually, it's the same thing. You've seen people fail around you. You've seen pastors fail. You've seen deacons fail. You've seen couples that everybody looked at, emulated, and said, this is the couple. Like, this is the couple. When we look at them, we see Jesus. And you've seen them cheat on each other and, and get divorced and move away, and their kids' lives become a wreck. You've seen all of that, and maybe some of that's happened in your own life, and you've been incredibly faithful, and God has been incredibly faithful to you. But around the same time that you see retirement coming in your workforce, you begin to ask the question, so what then should I do for Christianity. 
And so our, the retirement culture of the workforce begins to make its way into the church. And so we begin to find ourselves, you have unbelievable amounts of time. Nobody is accounting for your time. And nobody can make up for the things you know. But finally, you reach this place where you are most useful. You have the time and the knowledge, and we can't buy either of those. And the temptation is to check out. The temptation is to disengage. And the temptation is to chase whatever you would like to do to wherever you would like to go. This, for our culture, is why it's so incredibly that at the end of a life of faithfulness, when you have time and you have wisdom to be reminded of this everlasting truth, you know him who is from the beginning and is the one who called you as faithful and true and he calls you to a life of submission. He calls you to a life of investment, not to disengage. You see, in the church, we have to be reminded of all three of these. In the church, we are comprised of people who are young in the faith, who have this this kind of innocence and zeal, and they need the wisdom and maturity of those senior members to direct that energy, right? It's like when you have a toddler and they begin to do this number, and you kind of grab that head and spin it back around, and then they walk back this direction. We need the more senior members of the church to grab our heads and turn us and help us to walk and to keep us focused on the intimate knowledge that you know him who is from the beginning. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would help us to serve well with our other brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would find encouragement with where we are in you. Not based on our moment to moment obedience, failure, success, failure, but where we are in you. God is founded upon our association with Jesus, that you meet us in our failure with a renewed statement of our innocence. God, would you help us to stay dependent upon you? Would you help keep us humble? Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. They've yet to surrender their lives to Christ, that you would assure them of your great love for them and the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, who took all of their sin, all of their shame, all of their punishment on the cross of Christ. He died. He entered into the grave and he rose again after three days. And he now stands at your right hand and beckons them come to experience the forgiveness of the Father. Come to receive redemption. Come to receive restoration. Come to be made whole and to be loved. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.